where you live shouldn't limit your access to quality internet. That's not fair. U.S. Cellular introduces fast and fair high-speed internet. With reliable home internet from U.S. Cellular, now there's no limit to how you stream, game, and work. So instead of this, you get this. Upgrade to fast and fair high-speed internet from U.S. Cellular. Upgrade to fair. Have you ever wondered how the choices you make can heal your health? Well, we're going to find out tonight when we meet our guest, Dr. Bernie Siegel. I'm so excited to speak with him. Hi, I'm Connie Bramer. I'm the host of Laughter and Inspiration. Most of you know me as the founder of Get Your Rack Back, my nonprofit that's located in upstate New York. We provide gas and grocery gift cards and medical co-payment assistance and some other financial services to cancer patients who really need help because... It's a shame that so many people are having to choose between paying for food to put food on the table for their families and paying for the treatment. And we just can't have that. So my foundation tries to bridge that gap. And right now with the pandemic, our fundraising efforts have been halted to a, to a degree. So if you want to learn more about our foundation, you can go to GYRB.org. I'm also the author of How Connie Got a Rack Back and a contributing author to The She Shift Chaos to Clarity, and the new book that we're going to talk about with Dr. Siegel called Crappy to Happy. So I'm very excited to have Dr. Siegel on the show, and I know he likes to be called Bernie instead of Dr. Siegel. Um, I have so many things to tell you about him, and I'm going to just hit the highlights because there's just so many things to talk about. Um, Bernie, I don't want to say Dr. Siegel, Bernie has many accomplishments. He is a retired pediatric surgeon and retired clinical uh, professor at Yale. He has written 12 books, most notably Love, Medicine, and Miracles, which remained on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year, which that's just incredible. He has made appearances in many films and on television and is the founder of the nonprofit organization ECP, which stands for Exceptional Cancer Patients. I'm one, Bernie, right? And uh, it, it, what they do is it was created to provide resources and interdisciplinary retreats for people who are dealing with chronic illnesses and cancer. So Dr. Siegel, Bernie, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you for being here. I mean, to share with me, because what started me on, you might say, my new life. Well, let me just tell you this, too. It was very interesting. I went to a workshop run by Dr. Carl Simonton. I was the only doctor there. And here it's a doctor running it in Connecticut. I expected the room to be filled with oncologists and others who were caring for cancer patients because he had written the book, Getting Well Again. And um, I was the only doctor in the room, but my patients were able to come over and sit all around me. You know, they were comfortable with me. Mm -hmm. And there's no desk, you know, in the office. And we're sitting in an, in an auditorium. And this young woman turned to me when I said to her, well, you know, why are you here? What do you want to learn? She said, look, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. And that really, boom, because... It's painful when you care about people to not be able to cure everything and fix everything. And especially when you're doing a lot of children's surgery, you wonder why God made a world and give kids all these problems, you know, from cancer mm -hmm. to genetic defects to, oh. And why I say that changed me. I went back to the office on Monday after the weekend workshop. One of my partners, very intuitive fellow, Dr. Richard Selzer, looked at me as I walked in the door and he said, you're gone. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're not the same person you were on Friday. You're going to leave surgery. 
And about 10 years later, I did retire to talk to people and help people because one fellow said to me one day, did you ever think of writing a book? You could help more people that way. And Mm -hmm. it was the talking and the writing that showed me how to connect with people versus just sitting in your office or having a group meeting once or twice a week you know, with a dozen people. But when you went out on the road, literally, I covered the whole world um, talking to people. And uh, it it just helped me make a difference, as well as changing the office. Because one thing I I did was go back to the office and put the desk against the wall. So if anybody came in to see me, we weren't separated from each other. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my oncologist, he sits on his garbage can. He does. He, he sits on his garbage can right next to the um, exam table. And what that patient said to you just is so valid because as a cancer survivor myself, it was very difficult to live between appointments when you were you know, unsure of what was coming next and you really right. relied on your oncologist to tell you what's happening next. And even as a survivor, I mean, we're all survivors even if you're dealing with cancer, but um, being in remission, I worry and I try not to go to that dark place of worry, but I was mentioning this to a friend the other day that, you know, I, I graduated to year appointments with my oncologist about two or three years ago. And every year when I go, I can't go in the elevator because if you've ever had chemotherapy, that smell permeates from people and you know that smell, you know, and that, that the odor of that is in the elevator at the oncology office. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but when I go to my oncology office, I run up the stairs, I walk in, I'm all out of breath. <laughs> they think you couldn't take the elevator. But it, it brings me to a, a scary place, a place of fear. And one of the things that you said in this book that really resonated with me was that we have to allow ourselves to live in a place where we don't have to wait for a life-threatening illness to live our life. Like you right. said something about having, you know, creating a new date of birth for yourself. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Well, new birthday. Let me also talk about a garbage can because you mentioned your oncologist. One woman, literally, what saved her life? She developed cancer. She felt like she was, you know, dying. <clears throat> she had this plant that started to die. So she took it and threw it in a garbage can. I don't know how much later it was, but a friend of hers went to put something in the garbage and the plant was blooming in the garbage can. So she pulled it out and brought it back in the house and planted it. And it changed this woman's attitude toward the cancer. Mm -hmm. Here she throws away the plant into the garbage and look at it. It's beautiful. And she said, literally, it saved her life. It, it made her act like the plant, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Despite what was going on in her life, she pulled herself together and blossomed and survived. Um, and it's those simple things that happen, like you mentioned the odor. They all associate with you. I mean, they could spray the elevator every night and it would smell lovely the next day. But it's those simple things that your mind communicates with your body and then your body responds. So if all your thoughts are about, I'm going to die, this is horrible, oh, that smell, yeah, you could throw up and have every side effect in the book just in the elevator. Mm-hmm. At Yale, my patients began to be called Siegel's crazy patients. <laughs> they, why? Because they had a positive view of everything. Yes. So they had literally no side effects from radiation, no side effects from chemotherapy, You see, and at the beginning, and even after surgery, nurses said to me, your patients are a problem. They refuse pain medication. I said, never occur to you, they're not hurting. What are you, crazy? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, why should somebody not hurt if you cut them open? But the physicians, the reason they were called crazy, they thought they had made a mistake, that the radiation machine was broken, uh, that the nurse didn't put the chemo in the IV, and then they'd see my name in the chart and realize, no, it's one of his crazy patients. So that became an affectionate term because who wouldn't want to take care of a crazy patient? Somebody who is doing well, doesn't have side effects. And, and the words from the patients were, I get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. 
You know? Yeah. And oh, I agree with that. stuff for a doctor mm-hmm. here, but it convinced them. So as one said to me, <clears throat> when I sent the woman over who was told she had two months to live, and her friend told her to go see Siegel, he makes people well all the time. So she had leukemia. I said, it's not something you can operate on. I'm sending you to my oncologist friend. His note said, I agree with her doctor. She's got about two months to live, but... I know you and your crazy patient, so I'll give her hope. In six weeks, his note to me, because he sent me a note each week about her progress, but at six weeks, he said, she's in complete remission. And then his sense of humor was, isn't chemotherapy wonderful? Because in the first note, he said, I don't think I have anything to offer her, but Mm -hmm. I know you and your crazy patients, so I'll give her hope. That's wonderful. Again, when one doctor... It's hard for me. All these things that really have happened to stop talking. You're giving four drugs. Well, the first one was etoposide. The others were PO and H. So it was called the EPO protocol. One doctor, when he was looking at, down at it, he realized EPOH. That's hope backwards. So oh, my he, gosh. Wow. He made his protocol hope protocol. That's what he labeled, what he did. He had more patients have a positive response to the treatment than all the other doctors who were giving EPO. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I, to- I totally agree with the power of positive thinking. And yeah. actually, when I was receiving chemotherapy, there was a woman, I was, I was 39 when I was getting chemo, and there was a woman who was in her 50s next to me. And hers, like mine was a stage 2A. Uh, hers was the same. And she had a horrible attitude. Like I walk in and I say, how are you doing? You know, usually my, I'm bald and I'm like, right. how's everything going? And she's like, oh, I couldn't get out of bed today. Well, I didn't have a choice. I had two little kids I had to get up for. Right. And, I, and I wouldn't, and even if I didn't, I wouldn't have sat home because that's just not how I am. So I saw the progression of her illness very different from mine because of her attitude. And I really, I tell patients that my foundation helps that all the time because it really is critical to your healing, your, what, your, what goes on in your mind. It's relationships. Yes. Women with the same cancers as men live longer. And, you know, one thick-headed doctor said to me, oh, it must be the hormones that are helping the women. It was, it was about melanoma, that the women yeah. are better than men. I said, then if married men live longer than single men, it's sleeping with the hormones that are helping them. You know, <laughs> I mean, he doesn't stop and realize women are into relationships. So yes. they don't die. Like you just said, I have two kids. See, what right. do men say? Oh, I can't work anymore. What's the point of living? And I've had men say that while their wife and children are sitting in front of me next to them. I can't, you know, what's the point of living? I said, excuse me, turn your head to the left. There are three good reasons. Right. It was like, oh, I never thought of that. Now, I have to tell you this story. One, one family came in. They said, we know our mother has cancer and she's going to need treatment. We want to tell you, she has 12 cats. We don't visit her because her place stinks. So we'll get rid of all the cats, clean the house, and then we'll start. I said, no. They said, no. I said, you get rid of the cats, your mother's dead. You go clean her house and tell her, nobody wants 12 cats, mom. Then she can't die. And for years, they would come to my office with a big smile. All her kids would walk in beaming and looking at me. Thank you. (laughs) Because they knew mama is going to be fine because of 12 cats. And one woman's quote was, I have nine children. I can't die until they're all married and out of the house. And see, this is the part that fascinated the hell out of me. 20 years later, her last kid left home and her cancer came back. Now, I assumed she was cured, you know, Mm -hmm. by then. But That's the part, when I say it fascinates me, how do you keep something under control for 20 years? Then it's like you flip the switch and, okay, I can die now. Um, The body is amazing in terms of its potential, but the mind is what's giving your body the signals all the time. And that's what people have to realize. I think that's, it's very interesting. And it's true. I've seen that 
I've seen that play out in real life. Yeah. That's amazing. So I wanted to switch gears and talk about chaos to clarity. You and I are both in that book, which is the first of the series and cat crappy to happy is the second one. And then we have a third one coming out, which I was told the name of, but I was cat told me to zip my lips and not say anything. <laughs> cat cannabis. So anyway, you wrote about loss, gain and change. And I wanted to read this really poignant paragraph that you wrote and ironically it's the first thing you said the earthworm is my role model and mentor for handling change it can swallow anything you throw at it turn it into rich fertilizer and make it a positive growth experience in much the same way coal under great pressure becomes a diamond i thought that was fantastic and then the one thing i wanted to ask you about with this is change is difficult for people you know, like, like in my industry, I'm in the car business um, for my real for my job, and we always say change can be difficult, but not changing can be fatal. I mean, there's a lot of parts in your life where that can hold true. So, what would be your advice to people to allow change to be a positive, growing experience for them? Well, see it as labor pains. Let's put it that way. I always say a graduation is called the commencement. You finish with school. Why did they call it a termination? You know, that's true. But it's you're starting a new life, and and so that's what life is about. And I always ask people, what are you experiencing? In other words, you can have ten people with the same diagnosis, but if you say, what is it like to be going through this? They come up with ten different answers because it's about their life. And some are disaster, failure, roadblock, pressure, and others wake up call, blessing, new beginning. And literally, they're talking about cancer. Now, when they say new beginning, wake up call, I know they're on the right track because they're working on rebirthing, you know, and changing their life. But when it's disaster, the other thing I say to them is, what else is a disaster in your life? What fits that? And they give you a look because that's when they realize how their life has contributed to their getting sick. Our word was precious, so people understand what I, what I mean with the words. And the nurse came to me afterwards because I was trying to help her. And she said, oh, it's her marriage. She's going to go home and work on that. So those are the things that contribute to why you get sick at a certain time. See, Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. Now, if everybody loved their job, we're not going to have a problem. But when you right. don't, then your body says, I know, we'll get sick. Then we don't have to go to work. You know, we'll do you a favor. Because your immune function goes down, stress hormone levels are up, and you're more likely to get sick because of what's happening to the chemistry of your body on Monday. Well, and I agree with that with disease. I mean, when I had my cancer, I had gone through a really difficult divorce prior to, and my father has always said to me, I believe that that was like the instigator for your right. cancer. I mean, I'm the fourth generation of my family to have had breast cancer, the only one to have survived past seven years. And, um, you know, my mom died at 53. She died very young of breast cancer. So I kind of knew it was always coming for me. I hate to say it like that. It's just, well, the it's, I got to stop you there. Yeah. Identical twins both have the gene for breast cancer. One gets it and one doesn't. If because one was thinking about it. Why do you think she got it? They always say, oh, it's the good kid who's making mommy and daddy happy and giving up her life for them. And the other, her twin sister, is a little devil who's having this wonderful life, living her life, not what the parents imposed on her. See? And, and that's what we have to understand. The genes get turned on. I always say it's like a light switch. So the light doesn't work unless you flip the switch. And the same with the genes. It has to get the message. And part of it, and I'm not, you know, this is not about blaming you. But, you know, when your mother has had breast cancer, a sister has had breast cancer, yeah, what are you thinking and what are you telling your body? Yeah, I'm probably going to get breast cancer too. But when you're loving your body and telling it no, mm -hmm. you're less likely to have that happen. That's because a good lesson. creating within you. I agree with that. And I, I try not to think about it. 
you know, but it was always in the back of my mind. You, you know, it's just, I couldn't, I couldn't help myself, Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> it was there. But see, in a positive way, what, what it could be is for you to say, okay, if I'm going to bre get breast cancer and die early, then what the hell do I want to do with my life? Let me have some fun. See, because I saw that the other way when people said, oh, I've been told I have two months to live, so I'm not going to go for any more treatment. I'm moving to Colorado. I'm buying a house on the ocean in Miami. Uh, I'm getting a dog and putting in a backyard while I'm habitat. I'm not, I'm not going to retire. I want to go make the world beautiful. That was a landscaper. Um, none of those people died when they were supposed to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I learned because I always laugh when I say this. When you say to a family, call me for the funeral, and nobody calls you. I called up to say, why do you ignore me? I said, I want to come to the funeral. You know, he meant a lot to me, this one patient. And he answered the phone. Oh, <laughs> well, that's a great thing. It was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. <laughs> oh, that, that's Those great. Those are exact words, yeah. You have fantastic and, stories. You really do. And, and I want, I want to, oh, go ahead. I was no, going to say, I wanted to, to learn to tell people what will make you happy. Right. That's what you got to follow. You know, not making everybody else happy, but following your heart. And it doesn't matter the disease because I've worked with AIDS patients and you know, even the coronavirus, everything else. Mm -hmm. If you're following your heart and happy, you're not going to have the same serious illness that everybody else has who's depressed and worried, frightened. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about having second chances, you know, not viewing it as a second chance, but a rebirth. And when I had my cancer, I think it forced me to slow down and it forced me to really take a look inward at what would make me happy. And that's, you know, after I was well, I wrote my book and I used my book as my platform for my foundation. And I'm, I'm doing with that what really makes me happy because I'm helping other people. So I agree with all the things that you've it's, said about that. Yeah. I mean, some common lines, one with somebody who's supposed to die of AIDS, she wrote a note and pasted it on her refrigerator. When you live in your heart, magic happens. And she went to HIV negative. Um, wow. And it was the same. Oh yeah. A, a, a lawyer wrote a note saying, while learning to think, I almost forgot how to feel. Because being a lawyer can be very serious when all you do mm -hmm. is think instead of paying attention to your heart. But this one lawyer who wanted to be a violinist, but again, you see his parents imposed life on him. No, we can't be proud of a violinist. You will go to law school and be a lawyer. When he developed cancer, he closed his law office, picked up his violin, got a job in an orchestra. Wow. A few years later, he's in the orchestra playing, not dying of cancer, see? And he's living life on his own terms. Right, yeah. Yeah. But why wait till you have cancer to pick up a violin, you know? Right. That's the sad part. Yeah. I, ag I agree with that. Well, I wanted to talk about Crappy to Happy. And in your book, you know, the funniest thing is, in this book, your chapter is before mine. And I'm like, how can I even come after Dr. Bernie Siegel? Like, there's <laughs> nothing more to say after he, he writes. But you write so beautifully, and you write about your beautiful wife, Bobby. And I know that she passed away a couple of years ago. And I was speaking with Kat Cannabis last week about uh, signs that we know our loved ones are around. And for me, it is the smell of stargazer lilies. And if you knew me, Bernie, I can't keep anything alive in my house except two dogs and my teenage kids. Like I can't keep any plants alive. So there's no way there's a stargazer lily in my house, but I smell it sometimes. And I smell it when I walk by my mother's table. My mother has a drop leaf table that my father gave to me when she passed. So when I walk by the table, I smell it sometimes. It's just an odd thing. I know that you were married on July 11th, correct? And your wife, um, you feel you see signs of a dime and a penny a lot and pennies. Can you talk a little bit about the signs that, yeah. that Bobby leaves for you? First, I keep her near my heart. In that Beautiful. Pot. On the back of it, I don't know if you can see, there are a whole bunch of coins. They're I can. Pennies that I have found. So I started saving them. The, the, the thing that <laughs> has convinced me about the mystical nature of life are things that I've experienced. I mean, as a kid, I had near-death experience, choking, 
I've had a past life experience because somebody told me on the phone, why are you doing this? You're so busy. Why are you living this life? I went into a trance. But the other morning, the weekend earlier in, in June of Mother's Day, the dates were 9, 10, 11. I think Saturday was 9. She was born on 9, 9. Mm-hmm. We were married on the 11th. That was Monday. And Mother's Day was the 10th. So it was an incredible like mystical weekend because of the numbers. And I was, I got up in the morning to make the bed and I walk around to the other side to pull everything back, you know, to balance it because it's the bed that we slept in, the two of us. Um, But as I picked up the sheets and blanket and, and we're ready to pull it this way, instead, literally, it was pulled out of my hands. I mean, it was a crazy, it was a, some kind of force. And it threw them on the other side of the bed. And what do you think I saw lying there on the mattress? A dime and a penny in the bed. Crazy. And you wouldn't even have had that in your pajamas. No, I right? mean, you know, it's not if you had it in your pocket, you'd lie right. on top of, you know, of a blanket taking a nap. Okay, but this is, you know, on the sheet covering the mattress. And that same weekend, I threw some stuff in, you know, the wash and then in the dryer, nothing, no clothing, just, you know, blankets and towels and all rags and things that were dirty. And when I took them out of the dryer, there was a dime and a penny in the bottom of the dryer, you know, lying on that circle that tumbles. Um, I have found it. I mean, I'm sitting at home out the window here. Um, There's a bird feeder I made. And I heard a voice say to me, clean the bird feeder. So I went over to it and it was filled with leaves and cloudy water. I dumped everything out. There's a dime and a penny in the bird feeder. And wow. So it's about 10 times now I have found diamond pennies in totally bizarre places where you wouldn't expect somebody would drop a dime and a penny, you know, and you could find it. Um, and there's always a relationship. And the other, in terms of numbers, about nine, I said, Bobby was born on 9-9. About nine months after she died, my heartbeat went crazy, which to me supported everything I've been preaching and teaching. The person you love dies. What organ in your body is having a tough time? My heart. heart. Right. So it was going. (laughs) So I go down the emergency room and I walk in and I hear a voice say, put him in room. Nine. Nine. Yeah. They said, we can't get a room upstairs for you yet in the hospital. The next day they said, oh, we have a room now. I go upstairs. It was room 819. Then I look at my wristband that they put on you. There are two numbers, long numbers. One is assigned to me, so I'll always have an identification number, and the other is assigned to the visit, you know, why is he here kind of thing. Mm -hmm. My number had an eight, which is a number for a new beginning. Because as soon as I saw the eight on the room number, I knew I'm going to get better. It's a new beginning number. There's eight, and then there was nine, nine, and six, six, three, three. Everything added up to nines. And in the case number also, but it was more like five, four, seven, two, you know what I mean? <laughs> that kind of thing. And I've saved every one of them. I have about seven or eight of the wristbands now, because every time you go to the doctor or the hospital, they slap this thing on you. They always add up to either my anniversary, because one of them added up to seven eleven when we got married. Mm-hmm. And I was upset. I looked at it. It doesn't add up to nine. And then as I sat there with the numbers, it was, hey, dumbbell, it's your anniversary. It's seven eleven. Um And so every single time I've been, they have added up to the nines, except for once for our anniversary. And there are many other ways that Bobby has communicated with me um, that are totally mystical things. And I just share it with the kids and everything else. Oh, even... Oh, years ago, a butterfly, we rescued a butterfly and it spent 24 hours with us, literally. 
um, sitting on my wife's shoulder and her hand, getting in the car, going into the hotel room with us. We were spending the whole day flying over a workshop we did. I mean, this, I was talking to the butterfly. I knew it was one of my patients who had died on the island with, to be with her mother. Mm-hmm. So I just talked to the butterfly after I saw this incredible behavior that we couldn't get rid of it. See, before we went to bed, the, the story is on my website, BernieSiegelMD.com. I said to my wife, you can't sleep with a butterfly. You got to get rid of it. So that's what the story is called. You can't sleep with a butterfly. <laughs> because she went out on the porch, said, I'll brush it off. And she came back in our apartment on the other shoulder. There was the butterfly. She said, what? I brushed it off. I said, look at your other shoulder. So I knew this is more than a butterfly. And twice I have had butterflies in the house that you can't explain at all. And they're the same type of butterfly as was in Hawaii on my wife's shoulder. Um, I forgot the na- name of it. Um, what they, But anyway... But it's the same, you know, pattern and design and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are so many crazy mystical things. And one of the butterflies was even waking me up. It was banging on the window. I didn't know what it was. I heard a noise, you know, bong, bong, bong. I get up and I see a butterfly in the house banging on the window, like saying, hey, I'm here. I want you to see me. That's and crazy. like Bobby did when we rescued this butterfly, I just put my hand up. And they fly over and land on my hand. Well, now. it's 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 interesting that you talk about that because I grew close. I, I try not to grow grow close to a lot of the patients we help because it's it's very hard when they pass. You know, it's I always say to my oncologist, "How do you do it?" You know. So one of my patients, I grew very close with her. She passed away last year. She was twenty six. And her husband had asked me to come to the hospital when she was getting ready to pass so I could say goodbye. And so I went to see her. And then it was maybe two weeks later, I was speaking at an event, a breast cancer survivorship group. It was a retreat. And we're all under this tent and it's a hot summer day. And I start to speak. And all of a sudden, this butterfly comes in, like out of nowhere. And her, Sam, her name was Sammy Joe, and her caregivers were there from the hospital because that was part of a hospital talk I was doing. And they said, that must be Sammy. Right. So she, that butterfly stayed under the tent. I mean, it was open on all sides, but stayed and flitted from, you know, table to table. It stayed with me for a little bit while I spoke. And it was just such a crazy thing. But those kinds of signs are very comforting. Don't you think they're comforting to oh, people? Absolutely. If you're accepting of it, if you're accepting People aren't afraid to tell me mystical things because they know I'm not going to say that's crazy. I mean, there was one wedding after a brother died and the sister got married. And it was tough on everybody. You know, the brother has died and now the wedding is, you know, it's hard to be happy when we just, but on each table was one of those little cameras that would, you know, were provided for people to take pictures of the wedding event and so they could have them if they wanted. People called in to tell the family that they saw the brother in the photographs. There was like really? this cloudy figure and they knew it was the brother in the room. And it wasn't just one person who maybe had a crazy camera, you know, it was several people who called them to say what they had seen in the photographs that they developed. Yeah. That's amazing. I say this for you. Don't use the word pass. Don't be afraid to say he died. Yeah. In the hospital, nobody wants to say dead. Because like, oh, we failed. We didn't. Doctors try to keep people from dying, even even when it's torturing the person. You know what I mean? They're not living. They're not enjoying life. Why not let them go? Oh, no. Then I'll be a terrible doctor. I'll keep them alive another day. Um, more people die in the hospital at night when the doctor isn't there so they don't have trouble. They or the family is gone too. And I always told, especially parents of the children, I said, look, do your kid a favor, go to the cafeteria and get lunch. So if your child wants to die when you're out of the room, they can do it. Mm-hmm. They're trying to not upset you. So don't right. feel guilty if you go have lunch. I knew that was my mother because she had lived my sermon. She had had cancer too and 
taught all her doctors an awful lot about how to treat cancer patients because she would give them my lectures and sermons. Mm -hmm. And they all began to appreciate her and loved her. Um, but I knew that if she was ready to die, she's not going to do it with her son in the room who's helping everybody live. So mm -hmm. I would leave the room every few hours. And when I came back one time, they said, oh, your mom died. I said, I know, I don't feel guilty. I left so that she could die without me in the room. And then she wouldn't feel, oh, I'm upsetting him, you know? My mother did the same thing. So my mother was talking and coherent and she would go in and out. You know, she asked once, why are there chickens in our cars? My parents used to own a car dealership. And so my father's name is Dave. And she'd say, Dave, why are there chickens in our cars? And then she'd come back and she'd be completely lucid. We'd have a conversation. And on the day she passed, she said to my brother and I, why don't you guys go get something to eat? So we went to her favorite ice cream place where we were. And my mother loved root beer floats. So I got a root beer float and my brother got something. We were with a friend. And when I got back and I got out of the elevator at the floor, my cousin was there and she said she passed. So you're right. They know. They don't want to oh, have us carry that burden with us. Yeah, in our family, we have not had trouble dying because of all the things I've done. I mean, even my wife died quietly in her sleep. I mean, she looked yeah. so well in the morning. I was shocked when I went over and took her hand and it was cold because she just yeah. looked perfectly at peace. She went to sleep. Her father died on almost the same day, I mean, before she did, also in his sleep. A mother's spirit came to me and said goodbye. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not something I was believing, thinking this is years ago. Um, I was at a religious service and I saw this sort of cloudy thing come in the room and come over my head. Uh, it's like the size of a pillow, this sort of grayish cloud. And I heard her voice say, Bernie, goodbye. And then it went out. So I jumped up and went to the nursing home where she was staying. And when I walked in, the nurse saw me and said, oh, you've heard. I said, I didn't hear. She came and told me. Yeah. That's, that's really amazing. She had died like 10 or 15 minutes before I got there um, and said goodbye to me. And, and so all of them uh, had no trouble dying because it wasn't a failure. They weren't. You know, the family can handle it. Everything was okay for us. And um, that's something that families need to do and talk about. I often describe, because my father said I need to get out of here because of many physical difficulties. And my mother said, when I explained to her, he didn't want to get out of bed. He was talking about his body. We said, okay, when do you want to die? He said, all right, I'll die Sunday afternoon. We had a beautiful party. We told mm -hmm. everybody, Grandpa's dying Sunday afternoon. Come. And when does he die? When the last person who was coming came in. So we knew he was consciously aware of who was coming. Mm -hmm. He died laughing, literally. Because, yeah. again, the voice that talks to me said, how did your parents meet? This is the morning he was going to die. I said, I don't know. And the voice said, ask your mother when you get to the hospital. So I walk in the hospital room. Ma, how did you two meet? Oh, I was on the beach with girls I didn't know on vacation. Boys were walking down the beach. They tossed coins to see who would get the other girls. And your father lost and got me. And she said, <laughs> because the other girls had a terrible reputation, so everybody wanted them. Uh-huh. And, and their first dates were disasters. I mean, so many things went wrong that everybody in the room was laughing. I mean, my thought was, why the hell did she keep seeing him if everything went wrong? You right. know, um, but my father died laughing. I was expecting him to say, I'm not going to die today. This is too much fun. But yeah. when the last person who was invited came in, he took his last breath. And well, again, the consciousness that he knew, yeah, they're all here. I can go now. Yeah. And the well, children, see the beauty of it. You talk about death and being upset with it. The grandchildren in the room came to me, the doctor. 
is that what dying is like? I mean, they were really nervous. You know, mm-hmm. be a five-year-old or a seven-year-old, know somebody's going to die. What is this like? And it turned out to be a beautiful time. So they came to me to say, is that what dying is like? I said, it can be, you know, if there's love involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad that he laughed a lot because I believe in laughing a lot. I think laughter is the best medicine. And as part of my podcast, you know, it's laughter and inspiration. I have a page called laughter and inspiration and people post funny sayings in there. And I found a funny saying, you know, I try to find something that is agreeable to everyone. If I guess I found one and based on everything we've already talked about, I think you will find this kind of funny that I chose this one. It's kind of crazy how it all turned out, but I wrote, I found this one that says, don't ever go to a doctor whose um, office plants have died. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, if I was, if I, there's no way I would come, hey, you come tell me things and those things are real in a nursing home. They put plants in all the rooms. Mm-hmm. Half the people were told on this side of the hall, take care of the plants. It's your responsibility. Carry them outside to the sun, water them, etc. This side was told we're decorating your room. The people who had to take care of the plants lived three to four years longer than the people across the hall. That and being loved by parents yes. is about longevity too. Harvard study. Parents love you. Yes. had suffered a major illness by middle age. Did your parents love you? No. 98% had suffered a major illness. And that's why I've learned to reparent people. See, even what your show can do. I mean, I I keep a card here. Uh, I'm not going to go get it and hold it up for you. But I got a phone call. She told me it was 30 years ago. I, I almost fell over all those years that have gone by. But it said... I want to be dead. Do you have Jack Kevorkian's phone number? Really? I, yeah. I called her up. I said, look, I love you. You're a child of God. Why do you want to be dead? Oh, I've been sexually abused. I have a tumor in my head. And uh, I said, I love you. I'll be your new father. Because the father had abused her. I'll be your chosen dad. And I learned that from somebody in my office who was suicidal. She said, you're my chosen dad. And I realized... I had saved her life because I showed I cared about her. And her name is Becky. And I always say, Father's Day, who sends me the first card? Your chosen children. Yeah. And this time, the card said, Happy Father's Day to my bonus dad. So I thought, oh, we got a new term now. You know, and I I get love from her. Mm -hmm. She's in Texas. That's why. I mean, we're not seeing each other every minute, but we have met. And so I write cards to her. She writes cards to me. But she's alive today. And I made a difference in her life. And it isn't about me. It's about someone who said, I love you. So I'm always saying to people, tell people, I'll be your chosen mother. I'll be your chosen dad. Let them know their love. Then they take care of themselves because somebody loved them. And one more, all these stories. In Cat Fancy Magazine, it blew my mind. Here's a test question for you. True story. You have nine cats. You and your husband smoke. Eight of the cats are having breathing problems. The ninth one developed lung cancer and dies. What would you do? I would uh, stop smoking, get rid of the husband, and get rid of the cats. (laughs) I'm allergic to cats. I can't have cats. Are you really? I'm sorry. That's right. I'm very allergic. You know, everybody yells, stop smoking. I said, no, that's not this lady's solution. She wrote the Cat Fancy magazine telling her story. And it ends with, Doug and I now smoke in the yard. We're not killing our cats anymore. You hope you're not killing yours. Now, how the magazine could publish it without saying, excuse me, lady, you're still killing yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So I wrote a letter, which they refused to publish, saying, why don't you tell people to take as good care of themselves as their pets? Because a thousand years ago, Maimonides wrote, if people took as good care of themselves as they do their animals, they'd suffer fewer illnesses. You know, when you read those things from a thousand years ago, you realize how sick humanity is, you know, Mm -hmm. about loving themselves and each other to help each other. It's very important. Religions, races, 
nationalities, you know, how we're killing each other, fighting each other, instead of loving each other and becoming a family. You have a lot of wise words. Now, we, we talked earlier about, you know, living a life of gratitude before we got on air here. And one of the things I do when I write a letter to all the cancer patients that we help, whenever we provide a basket, I write to them and I say, you know, it helps if you keep a gratitude journal and write down three things before you go to bed every night that you're grateful for, for that day, because living a life of gratitude helps keep you in a positive mindset. So I wanted to ask you, I know you talked about the fact that you have a book from 1996 with all of your yeah. sayings in it. What three things would you be grateful for today? Well, let me say this first, because I learned the lesson from my wife. See, and this is what I want to make clear to people. I kept the journal and used to hide it because of what I was putting in it. The pain of being a surgeon, the horrible things happening to people in the hospital. Um, and literally, I still remember patients I operated on where everything went wrong. I don't remember all the good things where people did beautifully and went home. And so what did I need to get out of my system? Because I knew from my old friend, Elizabeth Kugler-Ross, she said, what are you covering up? I knew I was burying all this stuff. So I started keeping a journal and hiding it so none of our kids and my wife would get upset if they read it. Well, one night I forgot to hide it. The next day my wife said, there's nothing funny in your journal. I said, my life isn't funny. What are you talking about? And she started telling me stories that I told her and the kids at the dinner table that had them all laughing mm -hmm. about crazy things that happened in the hospital. But I never put them in the journal. And my wife is saying the same thing you're saying about gratitude. See? Um, don't forget the good things. Right. So I began to put them in. You see, and now my journal, um, when I find this from God knows, as I said, 1996, um, it's, it's wonderful to find it. The, the only insurance or faith in love. Thank you for this day. Simple to say, hard to truly appreciate at your soul level. Want to be healed, sit with an infant and play. I mean, these, I'm rereading it because it's therapy mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. I, I have one book out called years ago, 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. I'm still reading that. I don't know, it might have been 12 or 14 years ago. Every day I read it. And because it's a positive message to help you learn from life. And I'm still learning and why I'm reading my own books because I put a lot of good stuff in there, but I don't want to forget it. Right. So I keep reading and rereading. Well, I also think there's a lot of power for ourselves in going back and looking at what we wrote, you know, years ago or days ago, months ago to give us a little bit of, um, you know, point of reflection, you know, to look at where we've been. I think that's important. So I like that you reread your, your stuff. That's yeah, I've learned the power of love. I tell people to be a love warrior now. Mm -hmm. What's my definition of a love warrior? Somebody curses you, screams at you, tells you you're a horrible soul. You turn to them and say, I want you to know I love you. Now, I do that. And there are three times I did it on the street with violent people who were threatening us. I mean, we were out shopping, you know, with other people. And this men and women both come screaming and shouting. And I don't know if they have a gun or not, but I walked over to the adults and I said, I want you to know something. I'm sorry for whatever you're experiencing in your life. And I love you. Every single time they stopped, turned and quietly walked away. And they'll never forget that either, ever. Yeah. And everybody in the street was Thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you. Yeah. One kid, teenager, driving in a car behind us, and I couldn't get the police to talk to him. I mean, I, it, I don't know. The cop said, it's not my job. I said, this kid is screaming and cursing and angry. 
Um, so I got out of the car at the red light and our kids were saying, he could have a gun, don't go. I, I just had to. I walked over to him and I said quietly, because his window was down, I said, I want you to know something. I love you. I am sorry your parents do not. What and do what do you say? Nothing. He stopped screaming, made a U-turn, and drove away. And my prayer is that he went home and talked to his parents. You know? A lot of power I, and love. I, I woke him up to mm -hmm. what his life was about. Um, it's and, amazing, Bernie. Yeah, and it blew my mind. And I had forgotten about that. And that was in the 365 book. As I was rereading it, I came to that and was like, oh, my God, I remember this. Yeah, but it's power. Just keep loving people. Well, I love your advice. And, you know, if you Google Bernie Siegel, so many things pop up. It's, un it's incredible. So wh what is the shortest way? Wh where's the quickest way for people to find out more information about you? Well, I, I don't know what to tell them, but it could be on the <laughs> Internet, YouTube, who knows? Because I always say I'm a senior. I'm not, I didn't grow up with all this stuff. But my website is BernieSiegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, BernieSiegelMD.com. So they can look up, you know, like uh, deceiving people into health, which shows the power of the mind when you're taking care of people. As you mentioned, I did a lot of children's surgery. I lied to the children all the time. And it was hypnotic because they believed in me. Mm -hmm. So I lied to them about treatments. Um, what I love, and I always share with people, before you inject somebody, you take an alcohol sponge and you clean the skin. So what would I tell the kids? Oh, boy, are you lucky. They got this new sponge. It cleans it and it makes it numb. You won't feel the needle. And the kids would say, oh, that's wonderful. Why didn't the other doctors do that? And that's 80% of the kids had complete anesthesia. 20% would say, I felt it. You know, not the same as a needle, if you know what right. I mean. But I felt it. I said, oh, bad sponge, and I'd throw it away. And I got their parents to do the same thing. Get a bottle of vitamins, label it, whatever you want. Anti-nausea, pain pill, you know, for headache, whatever. And when your son or daughter say, oh, I have a headache. Oh, here, this will take care of it. And you give them a vitamin and they say, oh, good, I feel better now. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, it's the power, power of the mind. Yeah. yeah, power of the mind. Well, yeah. I have to say it has been such an honor to have you on my show. And Thank I hope you. this is the first of many conversations that you and I will have because I would love to circle back around with you again and talk right. about ACP, about your foundation. And so, CAP it is, ECAP. Oh, ECAP, okay. But let me say okay. this. Uh, what was I going to say to you? Oh, what you see in others is in you. Now, I say that because people could listen to my lecture, walk out and say, that's so boring. You keep saying the same damn thing. And somebody else says, thank you. That was such a wonderful inspiration. Um, and I know it isn't me. It's the people. What they're seeing and hearing right. of you. So I've learned that because, you know, it can be upsetting when people come up and say, that was boring. And, uh, you know, and I think, oh, gee, what did I do? But then the next person says, that's wonderful. And I realize it's the people. So it's to make people aware of how they react, you know, mm -hmm. whether they're willing to put in effort and be performers uh, versus blaming everybody else. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, if you'd like to know more about Bernie or myself, you can go to speakingtotheheart.org and check out our interactive show notes. My mom, Bernie, had a saying, and she said, always leave people better for having known you. Yeah. And you have done that quadruple fold. And there are people who are grateful for having you in their life. My wife, I don't know if you have another minute. Absolutely. Yeah, she used to do stand-up comedy as part of my lecture. So if I'm going to talk for two hours, halfway through, I'd have her come up on the stage and do one-liners for about 15, 20 minutes. I don't know how she kept them all in her head. Um, because if I, you know, had realized I would have recorded them all and written them down. 
But all I ever had was like the first half of a sentence. So if she got distracted, I would just say a couple of words and she'd immediately get back in the routine. But this part I remembered because she had the 10 warning signs, like the Cancer Society has 10 warning signs. Your husband calls and says he'd like to have dinner out tonight. So you leave a sandwich on the front porch. <laughs> you get your hair done and you come home, the dog growls and won't let you in the house. That's happened. You put your bra on backwards and it fits better. <laughs> you call your answering service and nobody answers. You call the missing persons bureau. They tell you to get lost. You call suicide prevention. They put you on hold. So you go to see a psychiatrist and say, nobody pays any attention to me. He says, next patient, please. <laughs> you go to a gypsy fortune teller. She offers you a refund. You open a fortune cookie and there's a summons. And the bird sitting outside your window is a vulture. Yeah. And my wife would say, if all that's true, folks, you got to get help. <laughs> but the reason, uh, you know, that I found it so important to incorporate her in was to show people the benefits of laughter. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you got hundreds of people sitting there listening to you for two hours. As soon as they would laugh for 15 minutes, they're all sitting up ready to listen again. And mm -hmm. I really made a point. I said, pay attention to your body right now. And when the, my wife was done, I say, what does your body feel like now? And they're all, oh yeah. And a study that was done. See, our emotions change our chemistry. As a, so this student, as part of his thesis, you know, for graduation, he took a male and female actors and gave them a script. One, the man murders her husband. Two is a funny scene. After the scene with the murder, their immune functions were down, stress hormone levels were up because he drew their blood while they're acting. In the comedy scene, immune function was way up and the, you know, uh, what should I say? The stress, stress hormones were down. Yeah. So even acting, because his professor was impressed because his professor said, that's ridiculous. What is acting going to have to, and he was surprised when he saw how much of an effect just acting had. Well, well, it's like the whole thing, fake it till you make it. Right. Right? William Saroyan said, everybody alive is an actor, but almost everybody alive is a very pathetic actor. And that's why we need to rehearse and practice. And I'd say, I like besides my books, if you want to read an interesting book, The Human Comedy, because it's a wonderful story about life. Um, back from World War II and it was a movie for a while also, but it, you know, it's about loss and life and, and that the only thing of immortality is love. That's what everybody tells you. So if you want to live forever, love somebody. That's a, that's great advice. And Bernie, you have been such a joy to have on my show. Yeah. I'm so honored. Like I really do hope we talk again because you're fantastic and well, you get in touch. I will. I love it. And you know, you've met a lot to a lot of people and after talking to Kat and Patricia, who are the, who are the um, mm. writers of The Chaos of Clarity and Crappy the Happy, I mean, they're just so overjoyed by what you write, and you just have a way with words. So I hope people go look up your books. You know, that whole theme from Crappy to Happy, you know, you're having a crappy life, and then somebody says you'll be dead in a few months. So you say, let me do what makes me happy, and then you're alive two months later. I mean, this is what was yeah. so clear to so many people. You know, why I would point out to them, What's going on in your life? Oh, and other doctors would say to me, why are you blaming your patients? See, that's the ridiculous part. I said, why are you asking me? What do you mean? I'm blaming my patients. Well, you keep saying to them, what's going on in your life? I said, yeah, because that's a part of why they're sick now. Right. But you see, what did the doctors interpret it as? You're telling them it's their fault they got sick. No, but it's contributing. See, mm -hmm. the psychiatrist agreed with me. They and would say to me, we don't need your help. We know what you're talking about. The medical doctors would say, oh, that's interesting, but it's not appropriate for our practice because mm -hmm. they're taking care of diseases. And Jung said that 100 years ago. The diagnosis helps the doctor, but doesn't help the patient. For there, the key thing is the story. For it alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. But it's taken 40 years because I see now what 
the things I did 40 years ago are beginning to become part of studies. And you That's know amazing. why? They really work. There's one recent yes. study. People saved thousands of dollars in medical bills and left the hospital sooner than the patients who weren't, you know, meditating, visualizing, helping their life. Yeah, but 40 years to get somebody to do research. Yeah. You have you have had you've lived a remarkable life with a lot more left to go, Bernie. Where, where I can't I can't I can't wait to see what you do next. So I will talk to you very soon. And for our guests, I just want to say, remember, as my mom would say, always leave people better for having known you. I'm Connie Bramer with Laughter and Inspiration. I'll catch you next time. Okay. Bye bye, Bernie. Thank you. Bye bye. Bless you. You too. Bye bye. College Savings Plan can help you support your kid's future career as a teacher. Uh, airplane driver? Um, no, their career as a hairstyle designer. As a dinosaur doctor? Oh, their future job as a windmill builder. No, an ice cream taster. You know what? We just don't know what they want to be yet. But while they figure it out and dream big, we're here to help you save for what comes next, whatever that may be. Learn more at OregonCollegeSavings.com where you live shouldn't limit your access to quality internet. That's not fair. U.S. Cellular introduces fast and fair high-speed internet. With reliable home internet from U.S. Cellular, now there's no limit to how you stream, game, and work. So instead of this, you get this. Upgrade to fast and fair high-speed internet from U.S. Cellular. Upgrade to fair 